Good morning. Good morning. If you are new around here, we may not have met yet. My name is Sam, and I am just emerging from maternity leave. We welcomed our first child around Christmas. So it's a little daunting and exciting to be with you at the beginning of Holy Week, because I've spent the last few months thinking about nothing more complex than the color and consistency of poop. But I'm thrilled to be here. Um, and I want you to know, um, if you've been following along with us, you know the theme throughout Lent this year has been addition by subtraction. And even though I haven't been around, I've taken that really seriously. I mean, I crushed Lent this year. I subtracted sleep. I subtracted reading, writing, my whole job, cooking, working out, seeing friends. Like, I took it really seriously. So I've been wholeheartedly participating from afar. Today, our Lenten journey culminates in Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. So let's take a look at Luke's account of Palm Sunday. And it'll be up on the screen. After he had said this, and the this refers to the parable that precedes this moment, which is the parable of the 10 pounds, quick refresher, that's where a master scolds his servants for not investing well, which could be read, read as a harsh warning to steward what we've been given, or perhaps an indictment of the system of domination that ruled the day. So that's worth mentioning because it's, that system is going to cause Jesus to weep in just a few verses. So after he had said this, that parable, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. So let's pause for a moment. There's some imagery to unpack here. You know, lest we grow too familiar with this story, it's worth remembering Jesus might have chosen a more commanding entrance, especially considering the parade that was happening on the other side of the city. Yes, there were two processions on Palm Sunday, Jesus riding in on a donkey through the tiny gate, and Caesar, surrounded by soldiers, entering the city from the other side with great fanfare. His armies came to quell any uprising that might be instigated by this Jesus figure. And Jesus' followers were also preparing for battle. They believed Jesus was coming to restore the throne of David, to throw Rome out. They're already declaring the peace that is to come through victory, and Caesar's here to maintain the peace that comes through force, but Jesus arrives signaling peace of another kind altogether. He rides in not on a war horse or a chariot, but a donkey, an image of meekness and weakness. Jesus arrives without protection and gives himself freely to the events of the week ahead. Some sort of strange peace is with Jesus already, even here in the prelude to his crucifixion. This whole business with the cult should have signaled that his power would not come through might, but through surrender, and yet the crowd throws their cloaks down as a signal of submission to royalty. They claim him as their king and victor. We'll keep reading. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, order your disciples to stop. 
He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. Luke is the only one who remembers this detail about the stones. And in fact, by week's end, when that same crowd does go silent, the stones will have their say as the earth herself quakes and groans in the aftermath of Jesus' death on the cross. And then finally, as he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Those are powerful words. If only, if only. They open up an alternate storyline. What if we had recognized the things that make for peace? What might have happened if peace had been recognized before peace was revealed? Why couldn't they see it? It's easy to judge this crowd, zealously declaring their allegiance and then falling silent by week's end, or worse, siding with the oppressors, their hosannas turning to cries for Barabbas. It's easy to judge them in hindsight until I think about how my enthusiasm for justice can be as short-lived as my attention span, how often I have shown up for the march, shown up on social media while I continue to profit from my privilege, advertising my loyalty to a cause I am not actually willing to privately sacrifice for. Yes, it's easy to judge this crowd and imagine ourselves at the cross, faithful till the end. But we know where the story goes. They didn't. They believed, simply at this moment on Palm Sunday, that they were about to win. And so naturally, peace would follow. But declaring a winner and a loser doesn't guarantee peace. I learned this my first week of marriage. We're, uh, we're big board game people. Are there any board game people in the house? Got a couple, okay. So this might be a deep cut. Does anyone know the game Scythe? Anyone? Yes, right there. Let's play later. I see you. I see you. Okay, so like if Monopoly's here and Catan's here and Dungeons and Dragons is here, Scythe is like here. So that's a bit of a reveal about what Will and I like to do for fun. But for our wedding, we were gifted a seven-game expansion pack of Scythe, a campaign, as we call it in the industry, where each two- to three-hour game builds on the last. And you get to, if you win, you get to open little boxes that have like meeple or wings or battleships that are going to help you in the next game. So we're pretty competitive. By game seven, I mean, the stakes are so high. We are so focused. We're, our hands are like trembling as we move the pieces. We are each so determined to win, but only one of us could. And this time, and this is very unusual, this time it was Will. <laughs> and so, at the end of our first week of marriage, I didn't speak to him and told him to sleep on the couch. <laughs> Declaring a winner and a loser, as it turns out, doesn't have a whole lot to do with peace. But the Palm Sunday crowd doesn't recognize peace, Jesus laments. Commentator Jay Wan Lee says, the rest of the story of Luke is how clients and collaborators of the empire use the violence of crucifixion to try to maintain their distorted version of peace. And their version was incredibly distorted. Jerusalem was entangled in a system of domination legitimated by theology that didn't work for anyone except for those at the top. Sound familiar? In my reading about Jesus' final days in Jerusalem, I was struck by this description of the unique, precarious role of the spiritual leaders at that time. The high priests and the temple authorities had a difficult task. Their primary obligation to Rome was loyalty and collaboration. They were to make sure that the annual tribute to Rome was paid. They were also to maintain domestic peace and order. Rome did not want rebellions. Their role was to be intermediaries between a local domination system and an imperial domination system. Some high priests seemed to have been more successful on this tightrope than others. 
I don't know what peace is, but I don't think it's walking a tightrope in order to perform the illusion of peace. In their case, the tightrope was strung between subjects and empire. I don't know what opposing masters you're trying to placate. Maybe your tightrope runs between justice work and personal comfort, between your political allegiance and your profession, between family and work. What kind of peace comes from pretending we're nailing this balancing act? from pretending we're delicately dancing above all the pain, conflict, and tension in the great demands and temptations of our lives. There's no true peace on the tightrope. I think we know this. So then why do we cling to that illusion? Why does the crowd herald the idea of peace on Palm Sunday while Jesus says they don't even know what it means? Fear, maybe? Fear that real peace isn't actually there on the ground when we fall? Fear that the light won't follow us into the darkness? Or maybe, sometimes we prefer the distorted version of peace because we've worked so frickin' hard for it. Just ask anyone who's tried to squelch a meltdown at Disney World by demanding everyone have fun because of how much we paid for these tickets. We work really hard for things to appear peaceful. Just last night, I'm preparing to teach about this very thing, and I'm on the tightrope. I'm trying on clothes to see what will hide what my body has done endlessly tinkering with these words, like I need to prove I've still got it. And every time my baby starts to stir, my whole body tenses. And when she finally goes back to sleep, of course, I can't. And my brain's screaming, you've got to sleep, you've got a big day tomorrow, which is always really helpful. Thank you, brain. And at some point in the early hours, I finally relented to this being hard, to me being nervous, to feeling rusty, exhausted, self-conscious. And the first comfort I felt came in that moment of letting be. Jesus doesn't know how to perform. He stays close to the ground and walks right into the heart of the irreconcilable, into the city of those who want him crowned and those who want him dead and most of us who can't decide, and peace is with him. But not us. If only, Jesus says on Palm Sunday, looking up at the rest of us on the tightrope, if only you had recognized the things that made for peace. So his peace has nothing to do with winning, nothing to do with performance. What then? Maybe it's our very picture of what peace is that has to change. Take a moment, close your eyes with me, and just picture peace in your mind. Notice what pops into your head. What does it look like? Here's a few of the images that show up when I Google peace. You can open your eyes. Uh, this one came up pretty quickly. I wonder, when's the last time you sat on a bench like that? Does anyone actually know of a bench like this here in Austin? I'd love to go. I'd have to time it so that the sky was that color. I'm usually with my daughter at night, so I'd need childcare. So it's $17 an hour for a nanny. I also want to make sure that I'm the only one on the bench, so I probably have to get there a few hours early. What's 17 times 3? It's just tricky to get to the peace place, but I'm sure it's great once you're there. Let's look at another image. This one came up as well. Lots of versions of this when you Google peace. I wonder, when's the last time you've been in a circle like this? I mean, I work at a church. I can't remember the last time I held hands with someone. Maybe that's why I'm not at peace. And finally, here's one more. You guys, I'm telling you, the number of pictures that come up of someone releasing a bird out of their hands? Has anyone done this? Like, is this a common experience? The closest thing I ever had was one time I was on a run, and a bird came down and kind of clawed my scalp and used it as a trampoline to, like, continue on its flight. I don't know if that counts. Somehow, our culture has agreed that peace is the 
absence of noise, fear, longing, despair, discomfort, and rage. That's not what we want, is it? Certainly not what I need. I need the peace that keeps me company inside the chaos. Not some peace up in the clouds, but the peace of the stones. Such is the peace that rode with Jesus towards his death. The peace that would follow him to Gethsemane, would sit quietly beside him, inside him, even as Luke describes Jesus sweating tears of blood in anguish. Cynthia Bourjolt describes this kind of peace this way in her book, The Wisdom Jesus. A quiet, harmonizing love was infiltrating even the deepest places of darkness and blackness in a way that didn't override them or cancel them, but gently reconnected them to the whole. Could it be that peace isn't so particular? That we don't have to meet it at the seaside in Shavasana for a 71-degree sunset? What if peace has always been waiting for us at the tiny gate that gives way to our suffering, but we miss it because we just keep choosing the war horse? We deny, we repress, we fight back, but our methods of self-preservation accomplish nothing but to protect us from peace. The peace that is unafraid to stay with us as we walk the road towards any of the deaths we face, be it that of our ego, our marriage, our mother, our memory, career, comfort, status, faith, plans, savings account, dreams, or the loss of our bodies themselves. Peace will not pave us a detour, but simply keep us company and whisper that God has been here too. If only you had recognized the things that made for peace, Jesus weeps in the middle of his parade. So what are they, Jesus? All week I tried to identify them, to distill the things that make for peace into three tidy bullet points. Where is peace when our world is not at peace? Where is peace when our lives are not at peace? Can we have peace within us and still long for peace between us? Jesus, did you have peace? Really? Peace? as you looked out on the broken city of Jerusalem at the threshold of all you were about to endure? Thank God we get to sit with this story every year because I still don't get it. But I heard something recently that gave the paradox a name. Richard Rohr says that the mature Christian life will be characterized by two things, longing, yearning for all that is not yet, and absolute contentment. Such is the mysterious peace that goes with Jesus on Palm Sunday that cozies right up next to his fear and anguish. It's a peace that goes with us as we surrender our little lives and move into solidarity with those who suffer or as we face our own loss. It's a peace that's available even before Easter, before our story is redeemed. There is a peace that comes before peace comes. That's the best I can say it. And Jesus weeps on the hilltop because we miss it. We've got the longing, we're good at that part, but we miss the deep, abiding peace. We'll miss it all week. We've added too many things. Peace might have allowed Peter to proudly declare his allegiance to Jesus, to the teenage girl who asked, if only Peter could have subtracted his cowardice. Peace might have equipped Judas to resist the temptation to collaborate with empire, if only Judas could have let go his greed. Peace might have meant for a last supper filled with more substantive conversation than who was the greatest. Like what else might they have talked about on their last night with Jesus? What were they left wishing they had asked? If only the disciples could have released their pride. And maybe had peace been with Pilate, he would have made a decision to protect the innocent. He might have used his influence for good if he had been able to subtract his need for approval. And maybe had peace been with us in the crowd, we would have called for Pilate to release the innocent one. The crowd might have defended the one whom the state and system sought to crush if they could have surrendered their need to win. 
But that's not how the story goes. And I'm glad, honestly, because I'm not sure we'd still be telling it if it weren't so desperately human. And peace still comes eventually. That's the good news. That's next Sunday. And Jason has worked hard to help us see that God's grace does not depend on our acceptance. We can be dragged to Golgotha kicking and screaming, or we can fix our eyes and arrange our transportation. Resurrection won't discriminate. But when my life comes into view from the hilltop, I don't want Jesus to weep over the peace I might have known along the way, hidden from me because of all that I added. Perhaps, it turns out, the list of things that make for peace is only as long as the number of things we try before we surrender. You know, there's a few details in the Passion account that Luke records a bit differently. And one is Jesus' last words on the cross. Matthew and Mark remember, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Luke gives us, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Desperate longing and absolute contentment. Oh, how it comforts me that there's room enough for both in the heart of Jesus. I don't know if there's a better picture of peace than falling into God's hands when we're convinced they aren't there. Here's an image that I wish came up when I Googled peace. This is by a local artist, Graham Francois. I think it beautifully illustrates the peace that doesn't depend on the storm being over and what becomes possible through our posture of surrender. We'll bring that back in our worship so you can reflect on it longer. But this is all very easy to contemplate. It's quite another matter to embody. So this Friday, you won't want to miss a video that we'll be sharing on our pages. A couple in our community has bravely volunteered to share their journey of finding peace inside an unexpected and unimaginable storm. Their story will serve as our Good Friday experience, for we trust that the path Jesus modeled on the cross is available to all of us. And Clyde and Kitty have walked that road in our day so faithfully. So be sure to look out for that this Friday. When I look at the Holy Week account, it seems that only for Jesus was it, as the late Thich Nhat Hanh says, peace all the way to peace. The disciples didn't know peace until after the stone was rolled away. That's not how the story went. But we're still writing ours. If only, Jesus implores, if only... May we join him and accept the gift of peace now, the peace that does not eclipse our tears but weeps with us as we ride bravely towards Friday. And at the same time, in the same direction, Sunday.